0: In this week's show, I'm going to continue sharing with you a presentation given by Thomas Campbell in his keynote speech at the Monroe Institute this last March. Some of uh, what he is saying gets a little deep, but based on my shamanic and scientific experience, I can say with complete confidence that he is sharing with you is the true nature of reality and consciousness, and it is well worth listening to over and over again until you fully comprehend what he's saying that takes us to uh, information in a digital system is represented by organized bits. So let's talk about organization. If you were a double E, you'd, you'd say this in terms of signal and noise. You have a signal that's the information and you have noise and that's still energy but it's random. It, there's no information in randomness. So if with to get information you you have to not have randomness you have to have order. Okay now a measure of order or Perhaps I should say a measure of disorder is called entropy. It's a measure of disorder. So if you have high entropy, you have a lot of disorder, you have randomness. If you have low entropy, you have a lot of order, a lot of coherency. Okay, that's the that's the difference. So um, uh, if you have an information system, this information system is as it has information in it, it has to have order. As that information dissipates and no longer has information, you go to higher entropy. All right. Um, Entropy can be thought of in another way as well, and you'll see how the two are connected. If you have high entropy, you have very little ability to affect anything or do anything. If you have low entropy, you have a lot of ability to affect things. You have power. The physics term is it's it's the ability to do work, but you have power. Now, Imagine a, a bottle of gasoline. So you have a bottle of gasoline. Uh, as a bottle of gasoline, the molecules in that gasoline, that'll be our system. They have a lot of ability to do things. right. They can change things. You can throw a match in there and suddenly everything in the vicinity has changed. You can pour it in your car and you can drive your car someplace. So that gasoline, because those, those molecules of gasoline are ordered, they're packed in a very small place It's so dense it's a liquid. Okay, now we let that eva- that same gasoline evaporate. Now they it's evaporated, entirely gone, we still have a system of gasoline, still same number of gasoline molecules exist in the universe. They're just spread all over the atmosphere. What can they do? Nothing. See, they've lost their power because they've lost their order. Now they're random and they lose power. So, that's two two ideas about entropy it's a measure of disorder, and it also tells you it's a measure of power or ability to affect something. All right. Um, Self changing systems with a purpose evolve to be more successful within their environments uh, by lowering their entropy. Evolution is a very fundamental concept technologies evolve, you know, uh, governments, mon- monetary systems, everything evolves or de- evolves, you know, it goes both ways, but things change. Self-changing systems that can learn and that can change themselves evolve and you can take that evolution and explain it in terms of entropy. You evolve when you're decreasing the entropy of your system. In other words, the system works better, it's more organized, it's more functional and you're de-evolving as, as you dissipate that information and it becomes more random. Okay, So even our own evolution can be, our biological evolution can be put in that term, in terms of entropy. Um, so consciousness is a self-aware, self-modifying system evolving toward lower entropy states. All right, let's talk about the uh, attributes of consciousness. Um, well, one more thing about evolution, and that is that a large complex system only has two choices. You'd think it might have three. It can either evolve, it can de-evolve, or it can stay the same. Well in any large complex system staying the same is not a stable option. Okay, you might think that well it could gain a little, lose a little, gain a little, and kind of stay constant, you know, on an average. But that doesn't happen. That's short-term uh, stable, but not long-term stable. Large systems that can change will either eventually evolve or de-evolve. So it's your choice there if you're one of those systems is to evolve or die. That's the choice, which means you decrease entropy or die. Okay, individual consciousness evolves toward lower states of entropy, and that's equivalent to saying higher quality consciousness or more spiritual states. So then we'll take a one step from that and say that love is the net, is the, uh, a description of a low entropy consciousness. That's what love is. Love is a low entropy consciousness. Okay, now you can think about that. That makes sense. Love is cooperative. It's about other. It's about caring. That builds, constructs, watches out for each other. You know, you can see that as kind of a building constructing thing, where on the other side you have fear, you have hysteria, you have anxiety, you have all of that sort of thing. And instead of being about other, it's about self. It's all about me and mine, as opposed to building anything constructive. It's about me making sure I get a hold of mine. That tends to pull things apart. That's not cohesive and doesn't build. So you can see that uh, love is the direction of evolution in consciousness. You lower the entropy of consciousness, you're moving toward love. Okay. attributes of consciousness. Input, that's experience. Memory, if you didn't have memory, every input would be the first. Processing, you have to be able to look at that experience that you get from input and assess it. Purpose, that's how you assess it. You assess it against a purpose and you have to be self-modifying. Okay, Those are the basic attributes. Now think about these attributes. They describe exactly our biological systems as well. Think of those uh, biological cells. Say uh, when the cells, the, the first cell if you like, or maybe the first little groups of multi-celled creatures that are in the primordial sea someplace, what did they have to have? They had to have connection to their environment, right? They had to interact with their environment. That's the input. They had to have memory. Now, it wasn't intellectual memory. It was just cellular memory. But they had to have memory, otherwise they'd never know, you know where they'd been, whether things were, were better or not. They had to have purpose. That was to procreate and survive. That was their, their purpose, which means lower their entropy. And they had to be self-modifying. If they weren't self-modifying, well, we wouldn't be here, right? They'd still be just those few little cells. They had to be able to change themselves against their purpose Survive and, and uh, multiply against the data which was coming from the environment against their input. Okay, so as it turns out, this input memory processing purpose and self modifying is a description of consciousness. It's also a description of life. That describes those are the qualifications for sentience. Okay, anything that's sensing, anything that has that can react and interact, okay, has to have these these. Uh, these things. Well, what else does that remind you of? Input, memory, processing. Sounds kind of like your desktop computer, doesn't it? Till we get down to the last two, with purpose and self-modifying. But someday those two will be overcome as well. We will one day probably see conscious computers. Um, anyway, um, drop that bomb and just move on. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later if you like. All right. Let's do it. Let's do a summary. Um, Summary. Consciousness is best modeled as a superset. Got the summary. Good. Uh, A self-modifying digital information system capable of computing virtual realities. The larger conscious system evolves by lowering the entropy of the system. It lowers the entropy of the system by organizing bits at its disposal to more profitable configuration. Just summarizing all the things we just said. Feedback of the results of previous choice allows to modify future choice. That's free will. Next, let's find out where we come from. Okay, we're, we're, what are we here? Consciousness. Um, because experience okay, is the generator of input, in order to have the experience you need interaction with something. Experience comes from interaction. Well if you have one monolithic consciousness, the only thing it can interact with, the only thing it can have experience with is itself. That's extremely limiting. So just like those biological cells that decided to split and start to evolve multi-celled things which were lower entropy, more order, right? More construction, more things working for the whole. Same with consciousness. Consciousness divides itself into pieces so those pieces can interact with each other with free will. Now you have let's say thousands of smaller things all interacting with free will. Suddenly your ability to have novelty and to have experience that you can grow from, that you can lower your entropy from, is much, much greater, much more experience, instead of just one thing interacting with the self. Okay, so that's what we are. We're those chunks of consciousness. We're one of those chunks of consciousness. And now you see that we, just our existence, what we're here for is to lower our entropy, evolve toward love, right? That tells you your purpose. And we're also, it tells you that we are part of the system, but the system now is the larger consciousness system. We're part of that system's way of evolving, right? It, we're, we're It's strategy to evolve, okay? So as we evolve and lower our entropy, the whole system lowers its entropy because any part of the system lowers, lowers its entropy by a smidgen, the whole system has its entropy lowered by that smidgen. So we're part of the strategy of the larger system. It's evolution, all right? That tells you our purpose, positive direction of that purpose. That defines what's negative, what's positive, what's good, what's bad, what's moral and immoral, okay? What's positive and good and moral are all those things that lead to decreasing the energy, moving toward love. What's negative, bad, and immoral are all those things that do the opposite, that increase the entropy of your personal consciousness. It breaks out real easily like that, and a, a logical break out of that's done in, the, in my forum. There's a, there's a thing in there that's a, a moral code that kind of lays all that out and uh, how, that, how that works. We don't have time for that now. That would be more than two hours just by itself. Um, Okay, now we've got us. Then what about physical reality? Where does physical reality come from? Well, to produce an effective, profitable interaction, you need two things. You need a goal. Well, we've got a goal. Lower the entropy. But you also need constraints. Why do you need constraints? Constraints give us strategy, logic, order, feedback, learning, you can't learn without constraints. Think of a kindergarten class with no constraints. What would you, what would they learn? They'd learn to be wild, right? Anarchist is what they'd learn. Okay, there's, you need constraints to learn. Think of a game. Let's say you're, you're a player with three other people, four people sitting down playing cards, and there are no rules, okay? What's your strategy? How do you learn? How do you know who's winning? You know, you can't. without constraints. Without rules, it's impossible. You can't get any traction on it. Without rules, basically all you have is chaos. Evolution is difficult or impossible. Okay, so now this reality, then, is an elementary school. This is our schoolhouse. It has rules. What's the rules? Physics. That's what scientists do. Our rules are our science. Science goes out and tries to discover what the rules are. Okay, so the rule sets are physics. Um, Now, in order for virtual reality, like our physical reality, to be effective, okay, consciousness must be able to roughly predict what's going to happen next, and I'll see you, I I can uh, show you later why, why that's so. Okay, that information is important because it provides feedback and it's important to render this reality is used as a tool. So the consciousness has to know, has some rough idea what's going to happen next. We have free will, so nobody can really know what's going to happen next because we can do things that are unexpected. But because we're in a virtual reality, then how do virtual realities work? They all work the same way. Now, you've probably bumped up against virtual realities before, at least if you know any kids you have. You know, uh my son played World of Warcraft so I know about World of Warcraft because he was constantly at the computer when he should have been doing his homework my daughter played The Sims you know, both of those are virtual reality games multiplayer virtual reality games that you've either played or you probably know somebody that's, that's played them well they all work the same way we are a virtual reality who then creates other virtual reality games you see um, okay um, the way virtual reality works the way any Dynamic simulation works is you have the simulation and then you step it by time. So you, time, let's say we start right now and the time is something. Well, then you increase that time by a delta t, just a little bit more, and then you go back through the simulation again and say, okay, what happens if time's incremented a little bit? Then you increase delta t, you go back through it, increase. Delta, you're in a time loop. It's called the outer time loop that drives the simulation. All dynamic simulations are are done that way. Well, so is ours. So is uh, World of Warcraft. You know. Um, let's see. Um, we can talk about the uh, past, present, and future. Now that we understand time. And by the way, time is local to each reality frame. So this our, our reality frame, this virtual reality that we're in, has its own clock, its own fundamental time. Other reality frames have their own time. Well, what would be another reality frame? Well, your dream frame. That's a different reality frame. And you notice something about reality frames? When you're in this reality frame, this seems physical, doesn't it? When you're in your dream frame, that seems physical, and this one isn't. When you're in this frame, this seems physical, and that one isn't. Well, there is no such thing, really, as physical and non-physical. It's all just a matter of the observer. It's a perspective. There's nothing fundamental about physical and non-physical. Things appear to be physical when your perspective is in that reality frame. And everything else appears to be non-physical. That's taking the theory of relativity one more step. Instead of there is no, uh, um, there is no uh, standard inertial frame like Einstein said in relativity, there is no fundamental reality frame. They're all just relative to the observer. I just thought I'd toss that in. Um, okay, d- um, databases. I'm to, there's three databases. Actually, there's just two, but I'm going to make it three. I'm going to break one of them into two pieces because it's easier to understand that way. First is the future probable reality. So, okay, here we are in a delta T, computed our reality. Now, we can, we can guess what's going to happen in the next delta T before it actually happens. Okay, we just extrapolate what's going on. Now, these delta T's are very small. Okay, they're like 10 to the minus 44 seconds very small. That's a nano, 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 nanosecond, okay? Very small. Much, much smaller than we can measure by about 35 orders of magnitude, okay? So to us that seems instantaneous, but it's not really instantaneous, okay? So that's these things are very, very tiny, and that's just our, our clock. So what we have to do is try to guess what's going to happen the next 10 to the minus 44th second from now. Well, that's not too hard, right? Because when you guess real short in, you know, it's kind of easy to make that guess. But then we can say, well, well, let's assume that we guess right. And using that as, a, as truth, let's guess the next one. And we assume that that one's right. Let's guess the next one. We can keep doing that and work it out just as far as we want to. But of course, our accuracy gets rattier and rattier the further we go out because we've got this whole stacked list of, of assumptions, each one being that the last one was right. Okay, But we can, we can do that and that's called the Future Probable Database. Now, if, you know, there's a rock rolling downhill, then the next delta T, what's it going to be? Well, it's going to roll a little further, right? So that's easy. All the stuff is easy to calculate. What about the people and their choices? Well, that's not that hard either because if you are, if this is virtual reality, you are a collection of data, rules, memory, you know, the things we said that was consciousness, your consciousness. That's what you are. You're a thing. You're a piece of consciousness. Getting a data stream. That data stream you interpret as this reality. Okay. Okay. So um, everything happens in the present. I mean, a free will happens in the present. So you are being modeled because every thought you had, every idea, every feeling, every tiny thing that makes you up as consciousness, is data. It's all saved. And there's a model of you there, basically, that can project to the next delta T. And it's a pretty good model because it's got all the data of everything you felt, said, done, thought of. So it's not that hard to project you either, but that doesn't mean it's always right. You have free will. You can always do something different. And when you do, the system just has to make that adjustment and run it back up through the calculations whenever that happens, but it doesn't happen that often. Okay, everything then, we make all our choices in the present after the present, um, that what was the probable future then flows into the past. Now, in this probable future database is everything that possibly could happen and the probability that it would happen. Okay, associated with probabilities. So then after the present, we make our choices and our choices, like I say, may or may not be what was predicted, but we make our choices and then Everything that we did, the choices we made, become our history thread and everything that we didn't choose, in other words, everything we could have done but didn't, becomes the non-actualized history. This is really just one database, this one history database, but we're breaking it into two, our actual history and all the things we did and all the things we could have done but didn't. Okay. So now we have these, these databases. All right. next, you'll see how imp- these databases are important. All right, now I'm going to uh, talk just a little bit about what all this means in a larger reality. Okay, you are consciousness, your reality is data. How do you communicate to another consciousness? You have to move data. Okay, now how do you make up data? You have to put that data in terms of symbols or metaphors and metaphors really are symbols, just of a different kind. So you have to put it in terms of metaphors and symbols some thought, something that you have. You make it in a metaphor and symbol and you pass that out there to another. And what does that other do with it? They take the data, that's all they can get is the data you send, and they have to interpret that data in terms of their own symbols and metaphors based on their experience. You can send it out in terms of your experience. You cannot put it in terms of metaphors you've never experienced because you don't have those metaphors. They can interpret it except by the metaphors in their experience. So that's the nature of communication, okay? You can see that, that uh, tells us why there's so much miscommunication, okay? That's the, that's the way it has to happen. Now, um, um, you know, so experience within various reality frames are defined and limited by your fears and beliefs because the, the, the way you interpret that data you get has to do with what's in your experience base. That's all of your knowledge. That's all of your lack of knowledge. That's all of your fears. That's all of your ego. That's all of your love. Everything that you are is pulls together to give a best pattern match for that data you receive. But it's a shadow, it's it's an expression of you, how you interpret that data. And from the sender's viewpoint, it's expression of them of the data that they send. You can never share an experience with anyone directly. Experience is unshareable. It's private and it's personal. You can describe that experience in terms of symbols and metaphors and you can share the symbols and metaphors, but you can't share the experience. See, it's unshareable. It's yours. Okay, so here's, here's uh, how some of this stuff uh, comes out. Uh, I'm going to use uh, Bob's first book because everybody here certainly has read that probably more than once. And uh, most people out there in the larger world have read it as well. It's a very popular book. Do you remember uh, once when Bob was out of body and he was trying to come back and he ran into a wall? Yeah, he got into this wall. Well, what is that wall? Some of you may have had experiences similar to that wall. they run into that wall. That wall is just a metaphor. It was Bob's metaphor for a fear of not being able to get back. Okay? That's what it was. He gets the data. He interprets the data. His interpretation was the wall. That was the fear. When you're in that out-of-body state, you often manifest your fears. Now, I'm not talking about an intellectual fear. I'm talking about a fear that's down at the blood and bone and sinew level, not one that's up in your mind. But we have those fears. We have a lot of fears that we don't even know we have. They come with our culture. They come with just existence on this on this planet. We learn it just by breathing and, uh, and interacting with other people. Remember, he stuck his hand through a hole and got a hook in it. Okay, that was the fear of the thing that can get you, right? The boogeyman under the bed when you're a child, okay? That was another metaphor. Um, How about people doing uh, NDEs, near-death experiences? A lot of them go through tunnels, right? They get in a tunnel and they go through a tunnel and there's light at the end of that tunnel and they open up and they're in a different reality frame. Why do they go through tunnels? I assure you it's not because consciousness system is full of tunnels. That's not it. So why do they go through tunnels? They go through tunnels because they have a belief that you can't get somewhere without going. Right? Why do people fly in the out-of-body? Because they have a belief that they can't get somewhere, they can't get from A to B unless they move. Otherwise, if they don't move, there's still an A. Well, that's a belief. That's not true. When you're out-of-body, you teleport. You want to go someplace, you just change the data stream, hook into a different data stream, and you're there. You don't need to travel but we have that belief. That's why we need tunnels. Okay, So these are just metaphors. Um, flying is just a metaphor. What about the great white light? People get into the larger conscious system and they often will find this they run into this being. It's a great light white being and they feel the love. They feel the connectedness. It is so wonderful they just one with all, and, and uh, they just rest in that beautiful spot for a moment. Well, yes, they have tapped into the, to the larger consciousness system because that's what it is, a system going toward lower entropy, toward love, and it turns into this white light. They see right now, where are your eyes when you're out of body? Right? They're bagging your body. You don't actually have eyes. You don't actually have ears, but you see and hear things out there. How's that? It's because you interpret in terms of metaphors of your senses because that's the only thing you know. If you don't interpret it in terms of your sense metaphors, you can't think about it, much less talk to somebody else about it. It's not yours to deal with. So everything, the data you get has to be converted into some metaphor applied to your sensory data because that's all you know. Okay. So um, uh, and why a white light? Well, why do good cowboys wear white hats? You know that's that's part of the uh, archetype. You know, it's a social belief in our in our system. Uh, besides, a black light would be hard to see, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, what about the What about the silver cord? If you remember those people going out of body, it wasn't called out of body in those days. Bob was the one that coined the word "oo," because he wanted to get away from all the the, the junk that went with the, the out of body, uh, the astral projection. But everybody did astral projection, you know, Fox, Muldoon, um, and Carrington. If you've read all those old books. Everybody that went out of body had a silver cord. They needed that silver cord because that was their lifeline. If that, because their belief was that the spirit and the body had to be united whole. And if the body lost the spirit, the body would die and go away. And if the spirit lost the body, it would you know, wander forever and be lost and so on. So they had to be connected. That was a fear. That was a need. So they connected it with a silver cord. Okay. Well, where are the silver cords now? Bob didn't talk about any silver cords. You know, Nobody sees silver cords anymore. Well, they're just not needed anymore because we don't have the same belief system. For those people, that was just like the air hose going down to the diver, right? It was necessary. If they lost that cord, how could they get back? You know, it's like the breadcrumbs, you know, for Hansel and Gretel. You know, that was their way back, and that was their lifeline because that was the belief that they needed it. Okay? So silver cords go away. Um, specific beings, angels, saints, relatives. You know, you see Uncle Fred, right? Uncle Fred, you, you know, he's been dead 10 years, and you go out and see Uncle Fred, and there he is. He's in that same plaid shirt, you know, with that same straw hat, you know, and a corncob pipe, just the way you remember him, that same smile on his face, and you talk with Uncle Fred. We well, you think Uncle Fred's been 10 years without a change of shirt? Yeah. no, you know? We dress those people based on our own knowledge. That's because that data that says Uncle Fred to us, then that's our interpretation. That's our metaphor we put on it. Well, what about beings in general? When we have a conversation, we get data from, that we interpret as conversation, then we turn it into a being because we have no conception of getting data from a rock, right? It has to be another being if it's talking to us. And if it's a being, of course, we kind of make it look like it's got a head on top and shoulders and arms. that We kind of make it look like us because that's our concept of being. So those beings that you see out there, that's your metaphor. The way you dress them is your metaphor. Okay? And those people that we don't know how to dress, I mean we know how to dress Uncle Fred, but we don't know how to dress a lot of those people because we don't really know who they are, where they're from. What do we do? Put a robe on them. They all wear they all wear robes. Yeah. robe robes are high fashion in the in the non-physical. Everybody there wears robes. I mean. Yeah. You ever you ever been in the non-physical and seen somebody naked? Um, no, never. Because we have, we, we have beliefs generally that that uh, make us use those metaphors. Okay, um, let's do a couple of more metaphors. Now those are easy. What about when we heal? What do we do? We uh, we envision the, the the bad stuff needs to be healed as like a dark mass of some sort, right? And uh, we put white energy on it, we project white light to it until we burn all that dark stuff away. It's the way a lot of us heal. Well that black thing is just a metaphor, right? That white light is just a metaphor. There is no light. We send somebody energy, oh and they feel better. There is no such thing as energy. This is a virtual simulation. That's a metaphor. Energy is our metaphor for something that makes a difference, for something that has power and can, uh, can produce an action. Just a metaphor. There's only one active ingredient, consciousness. Conscious intent is the only active ingredient. That beam of white light is a metaphor. What about the Hindus? The Hindus have chakras, right? They take, uh, they have seven chakras and they place them different places of the body. The chakras are just metaphors. Okay, now when I say just metaphor, you might get the idea that metaphors really aren't all that important. No, metaphors are good. We need those. That's how we communicate. We can't communicate without them. It's not that a metaphor, just a metaphor, means it's not really real. We need metaphors. That's how we break things into pieces. That's why I told you there were two databases instead of one. It's easier for you to see it that way. So we take the data, we break it into things that's easier for us to see, that makes sense to us. We give those various pieces properties, right, and then we can talk about it, and then we can have conversations. So we work up these models. They're all models, and they're just models. Okay, so you're beginning to... See that I am stepping all over your your beliefs here, um, so light's a metaphor, energy's a metaphor, all of these things are just metaphor. All right, now, so the nature of a virtual reality. This will be another big step. If you think I'm I'm leading you down the you know a rabbit hole now, you know, <laughs> this one this one's a big step for you to take, but it's it's the way it is. So I'll tell you the way it is. If you if you uh, Remember your, or if you remember what your kid was playing, and I'm going to use World of Warcraft and Sims because those are the only two I know. Uh, in the World of Warcraft and Sims, do the, do the people who make those games, do the programmers who make those games, have to render, they render the characters, right? They render the images. Do they have to render oxygen for the images to breathe? Well, you're thinking, oh, that's ridiculous. Of course they don't have to render oxygen for the characters to breathe. They're not real, like us. They're just made up in a computer. They're just virtual characters. Well, you know, if one of those World of Warcraft characters falls in a, in a lake or falls in a river or if the, in the in the Sims, they get in a swimming pool and there's no way to get out, there's no ladder, what happens to them? They drown. Why do they drown? Because there's not enough oxygen underwater for them to breathe. That's why they drown. You don't have to simulate or render the details. You only have to render the effects and that's true in this reality as well. There's no reason at all to render any oxygen in this room. No reason whatsoever to render oxygen in this room. Okay, This is a probabilistic reality, a statistical reality. Here's the, here's the measurement. I'm still here. Then the measurement said that there's oxygen in the room. That's because when the measurement was taken, you go to the probability, you go to the, to the statistical distribution, and you make a sample. Is it probable that there's oxygen in this room? Well, we'll look at the rule set. The rule set says, well, there's trees around, you know, there's, uh, you know, still there's plankton in the ocean, all these things that make oxygen. Yes, it would be probable that there'd be oxygen in this room. Well, if it's probable that there's going to be oxygen in this room, then we carry on. It keeps rendering us. We cut down all the trees, kill all the plankton, then it's not probable that there's going to be an oxygen here. We all fall over. You see? So it's a probability-based reality. You don't render anything that you don't have to. That's wasted cycles. Okay, so right now, you're all looking to the front of the room. In your minds, there's no data in your data stream that's rendering the back wall. None. Back wall doesn't exist for you now because it's not in your data stream because you're not looking at it. You turn around and look at the back wall. This is not rendered for you. You only get the data you need when you need it. It would be wasteful of computer cycles to render anything that wasn't needed. In, the, in those video games, your little video character turns around a corner and in, in the background you see the trees spring up and the mountains you know, jump up. That's because their server isn't very fast. Well, this is working on a cycle of 10 to the minus 44 seconds. Let me tell you, it's fast. You don't notice those kinds of things here. You okay, know, I'm going to... Uh, oh, here's one important thing, that, that middle uh, bullet there. When something is rendered, it must be consistent both historically with existing data and causally with the rule set. Those are the only two rules. This is a statistical reality. And what it renders is based on those two rules. It has to be consistent. That's why when that particle went through that was detected at that slip, it couldn't do anything after it was brought into the reality as a particle except go on a straight line like particles do. Okay? Because once it's rendered here, it's here and it has to abide by the rule set. And the rule set says the particles travel in a straight line unless acted on by some other force. So as soon as the probability collapses to a physical value, then you have to abide by the history. You can't have history jumping around. It has to be consistent, and you have to abide by the rule set. Well, it's the same with us. And You're going to see this is going to explain a whole lot of things that are right now unexplainable. Okay, now I'm going to solve one, uh, one deep mystery that we've all uh, pondered over and probably uh, laughed at, and we probably wrote it down as a semantics issue, but you're not going to get the, defi- the uh, definitive uh, answer to it. If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, here's the answer to that. There is no tree. There is no woods. There's no listener. They're all virtual, statistical, and probabilistic. Okay, now how does that work? So a man walks into a woods, okay, this is a virtual man, walks into a virtual woods, and what's rendered for him? What's rendered for him at that instant, because it's probable, because of all the history and the background and so on, that there's a, there's a dead tree standing there, and it's kind of wobbly, but it's still standing, and that's what gets rendered to him. Okay, Let's say that this is the first time he's been in that woods, but he sees that dead tree, you Now he goes away, and he comes back five years later, and he walks into the woods, and what's rendered for him? A tree lying on the ground, why? Because that's probable. Because five years later, probability would say, given the rule set, that because of winds and storms and the natural things that would happen over five years, that tree would fall over. So you see, the tree was standing, then it was laying on the ground, but it didn't have to fall. It was just rendered to him standing, and it was rendered to him laying on the ground, because that's when the measurement was made. And when the measurement's made, you go to the reality is just a probability distribution, just like those particles hey, these particles make up all this reality, don't they? I mean, everything here is made up from those little particles. And and just because it happened with photons, it also happens with electrons and protons and atoms. All massy things are just probability distributions until they're measured and come into this reality frame. Okay, that's a fact of physics. So it gets rendered based on the probability. So we find out that this whole concept that is said just to be only used for the very tiny little things in quantum mechanics. Only on a subatomic scale does this hold. It doesn't. It holds in everyday life. Our whole life is governed by the same principle. Doesn't that seem odd to you that there's this general physical principle and it only holds for little things? No, it holds for everything. It's one principle. Okay, so um, let's go on to the next one. I'm I'm seeing Shirley eyeing that big hook. I need to to move on before she... uh, gets after me. Okay, you are consciousness experiencing a virtual reality generated by consciousness. So you see, you're part of the creation as well as part of the, you know, as well as the experiencer. You're the creator and the experiencer both. Okay, the system's designed to facilitate its own evolution by facilitating our evolution and gives us a PMR where experience and feedback, you know, facilitates that. Now, Uh, consciousness intent changes the probabilities. So we talked about that future probable database. Your consciousness can change the future, can change those probabilities, because your consciousness, the system's consciousness, the reality is just data. Okay, now how does that work? Well, you've heard of the power of positive thinking, right? 1950-something, Norman Vincent Peale wrote The Power of Positive Thinking. Well, everybody knows that's obvious, right? If you think positive Positive things tend to happen. If you're a very negative person and you're just grouse about how awful life is, you end up having a lot of awful things you have to deal with. That's the power of positive thinking, uh, a very obvious thing. I know people who uh, create parking spaces for themselves because when they leave their home going to a congested area, they'll, in their mind, visualize a parking space just opening up just as they get there, because if it opens up too soon, somebody else will snag it, right? So they have one open up just in time for them and they work on that and if they apply their mind to that they find that about eighty percent of the time they get a parking space. If they don't do it, about eighty percent of the time they don't get a parking space. People hail taxi cabs in the same way that live in cities. You have to visualize that taxi cab. you have to see it, you have to apply your mind to it, and you can make those things happen for you right? That's kind of, you know, we do that sort of thing a lot. I have another guy, he says that he walks in a grocery store now, he never gets a cart as he goes in, he materializes a cart inside the grocery store so he can just walk through the doors and there's one just sitting on the floor with nothing in it. And he picks that up and he says that works about 80% of the time when he does it. So these are little games that you can, you know, that you can play to see how that works. Okay, well what about prayer? Okay, prayer works. Why? Because you have people focusing their intent, that intent Modifies the probabilities of the way things happen. What about healing? That's how healing works. You heal, not because that little black thing, you know, disappears with that, you know, that imaginary black thing, or that, that symbol black thing with that symbol light. All those symbols are doing, those are just tools and metaphors that help you focus your intent. It's your intent that changes the probabilities. Consciousness is the only active ingredient going on here. The rest of it is just tools. All right. Um what about the placebo effect? Very widely known effect in medicine, right? You give people a, a, a pill that's got sawdust in it or something, and uh, most people say sugar, but sugar's so bad for you, I can't say that, so. It <laughs> gives you gives you a pill with, with uh, sawdust in it or just cellulose, and they take that pill, and they're told the same thing that people are told to take the medicine. They're told, this is a wonderful new pill. We've just invented it. It's great. It's going to cure your disease. They take that pill, and about 30% of them makes them better. And it's not that it makes them feel better or just think they're better, it actually heals them, makes them better. How are, they he- how are they healed? How does the placebo effect work? It works because they now have a positive intent and that positive intent modifies the probabilities. Okay, And once you modify those probabilities, you're modifying what you're going to find when you take that measurement, right? You're modifying that probability function. You're modifying the, the probability wave function, if you will okay now that takes us to one that's kind of been rampant in the last uh, some years what about the law of attraction right that law of attraction that's a uh, that's the same sort of thing right you use your mind and your intent to program they say the universe but it's really the larger conscious system to give you what you want okay well that works in that you use that intent you can modify the probabilities sure enough but beware you have a system that is generated to help you evolve and has this feedback in it so that your intent does modify future probabilities. Therefore it modifies your future choices that you make, future measurements, the results of future measurements. But at the same time this system is here to help us evolve. That means lowering your entropy by getting rid of ego, getting rid of fear, becoming love. So now take a system that is evolved to respond to your positive intent and to help you drop your ego. You see you're asking if you if you use this law of attraction to aggrandize your ego to get stuff because you want it because it makes you big and important and so on then you're asking a system to use itself against itself. What's probably going to happen is that you may even get what you asked for but you're also going to get a lesson that comes with it that will help you decrease that ego. And here's an example. There was um, a fellow who wanted $100,000. He just wanted, his life would be perfect if he had $100,000. So he spent his time focused on that $100,000. He saw pictures of a man walking down a corridor in a suit, handing him a check for $100,000. He worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. About four months later, his mother and father his brother and his sister and all their children all died in an automobile collision. And he was the sole heir, and he got $100,000, and that man walked down that aisle and handed it to him just like he saw it. Well, now there's a lesson in ego. So if you're gonna ask a system to work against itself, you, uh, you better be careful. Not necessarily what you ask, but why you ask it. It needs to be for the right reasons. So yes, law of attraction works but it's, don't ask it to uh, work with your ego. All right, synchronicity. How does that work? Today we talk about synchronicity. Jim mentioned that. I'll explain to you how that works. A system only has to compute um, the probability of the next thing happening according to history and a rule set. Remember, those are the two things. Okay. A weak history provides for multiple solutions. Whenever you have uncertainty, The system only has to abide by those two rules, so if any one of those rules is loose, then the system has leeway to to the solution that it can provide for you. Alright, so let's look at an example. Um, You go away for two weeks, you come back, you've been in airports, airplanes all day long, your throat's kind of sore, you'd like a nice carbonated beverage, so you open up your refrigerator door and there's no beer in the refrigerator. And you know that there was at least three or four beer in that refrigerator when you left. And then you think what happened to the beer? And you go, oh, I bet the guy that comes in that gives the dog, you know, water and food, he's been drinking my beer, I bet. Well, perhaps not. You see, unless you took a picture of what was inside that refrigerator, it's not really a part of the record. It's just your memory, and you know, everybody knows memory plays tricks on you, right? And memory's not that uh, good, so when it comes times to open that door, what are you doing? You're making a measurement. When you open that door, you're making a measurement of what's inside the refrigerator. Well, if you had taken a picture of what was inside there and you could see that there were four bottles of beer sitting in there, then the probability distribution for that four bottles of beer would be a real sharp, high delta function, a real sharp peak of probability because you've got the record. It's in the system. So historical, um, you know, staying within the, in the, what historic um, demands would make that beer have to be there just like the picture. Unless of course your guy's stealing your beer, but then you'd know for sure. <laughs> anyway, if you don't if it is just you and your memory, instead of that sharp probability, you have this big kind of broad probability because there may be four, there may be three, there may be two, there may not be any. And when it takes that sample out of that probability function, it might just get zero, or it might get six, or it might get three. Okay? So you open that door, you make a measurement, the wave function collapses to a physical state. And there's a certain number of beer in that refrigerator and that's what you get. Now, because the system can do multiple solutions, it can manipulate that to nudge you. And that's where synchronicity comes from. That's also where all these anomalous things come on. How many of you have put your, your glasses or your keys or something someplace? They left them on my desk. You come back four hours later or the next day and they're not on your desk. And you find them, you know, in your bedroom or someplace. And you knew you didn't leave them there. You know, how many times do things like that happen to you? Well, these anomalies aren't necessarily because you're just getting old and can't remember where you left things. <laughs> Sometimes that's just the system. The system may not know exactly where you left it because there's no data, because the probability function is broad, and when you make the measurement, it's just not there. So you live in a very flaky reality, you see. But it'll only do that when there's enough uncertainty that there is no violation of either the rule set or of the consistency of the history. Okay, and we'll see how this plays out in the next slide or two. Um, okay, so what about the synchronicity? So you look in the refrigerator and there just happens to be no beer because the system wants to nudge you a little bit. So you go get in your car, you drive down to the neighbor grocery store, and you're driving in the parking lot and you drive right by this empty space and you say, okay, I'll you drive by and you go to back in it. You start to back up, and just about the time you expect you'll be entering the space, you turn around and look, and just as you look, crunch, you hit a car. And you look back there and say, where did that car come from? Right? Where did that come from? It wasn't there. I just looked. And then you think, somebody, some jerk just pulled into that space just as I was backing into it. So you look again, and there's nobody in the car. You say, boy, they must have been fast. So you get out, and you walk around to the car, and you look, and you see, well, there's really no damage. You're going very, very, very slow, and there's no damage. And about that time, you look up, and here's somebody coming out of the the store with two bags of groceries, obviously, you know, had been in there a while, and that's their car. So they look out, and you both look at the thing and say, well, there isn't any damage. And then what happens? That person turns out to be your soulmate you get married. That person turns out to offer you a job. That person turns out to invite you to their their meditation class, and it changes your life. You know, that person and so on, right? This is synchronicity. Things just happen. The no beer in the refrigerator went to the grocery store, went to the car that wasn't supposed to be there, ran into the person that changed your life or was very meaningful or turned you on to a particular book or whatever it is. That's how the system works synchronicity. It's that uncertainty gives it the ability to manipulate you and nudge you. And it can do that as long as it doesn't violate those two principles. It's a statistical reality. We don't live in an objective reality. If I had time, I I could explain to you why objectivity is only an approximation. We live in a statistical, probabilistic reality. Quantum mechanics tells us that. We just don't believe it because we don't know what to do with it. But that's the way our reality is. All right, next. Now we're going to use this knowledge to solve some problems. Okay, the appearance, the false appearance of backward causality. Now this isn't, the the, the experiment I'm going to give you follows what actually happened, but isn't what actually happened because I'm just giving you a a kind of character of it that makes it easy to understand. Okay, imagine 20,000 hospital records. These hospital records go back say over two decades two decades of people coming out of a hospital. You're going to take those 20,000 records, you're going to break them into 20 groups of 1,000, randomly, separate them into 20 groups of 1,000. Then each group of 1,000, you're going to randomly break into two groups of 500. One of those groups of 500 is a control group. The other group, you're going to use your intent to improve the health of those people that are in that one group of 500. Okay, now this was done, first one that I know of that was done was done in, in Israel, and I think it was a group of rabbis. And others who uh, prayed for these people or otherwise used their intent for their good health. Well, what they found out was that group that they had prayed for and used their intent to make them healthier, they had statistically significantly lower hospital stays, you know, shorter hospital stays than did the control group. Statistically significant. Well, you know that means that uh, you know there was only uh, probably a 10 percent or less probability that that actually could happen that way. Well, that's not that amazing, you know, things that are only 10% probability happen every day. But then they did the same with the next group, and the next group, and the next group, and eventually they had all 20 groups. Every one of them that they had prayed for and used their intent on had shorter hospital stays than the control group, the other 500. All right. Now, the first one was interesting, but not miraculous twenty in a row, now you're talking about one in a million. That's like flipping a coin twenty times and getting heads every time. Hard to do, by accident. Okay, so this is, the conclusion they came to is that somehow they were affecting the health of these people in the past. Because this data was old. This wasn't current data. This was old data. That's called reverse causality. This experiment is done a lot of different ways. It's been done over and over. It's been done in Princeton, it's been done uh, Lots of places, not necessarily with, with patients. It's done with radioactive isotope where they take a radioactive isotope that's decaying. They take two Geiger counters. Each Geiger counter should, should over time get roughly the same number of counts because when it decays, it decays in any particular direction. Uh, then they take this data, and years later, they'll have people bias the results such that, say, the, the Geiger counter on the right gets significantly more counts than the one on the left. They have a little, in pair lab, they have a little robot, and that robot is given a random motion in the four directions. So they put it down in the middle of a big circular table, and they let it just wander around. And they can let it wander around for days, and it never leaves, you know, maybe about a square foot box, where it just wanders around at the center of the table, because it's random motion. So you get as much going one direction as the other, and it doesn't go anywhere. The person applies their intent to it, that little robot walks across the table and falls off the edge. Now these are experiments that have literally been hundreds of times under immaculate protocol, and uh, scientific uh, inspection. So this is a, a, uh, a fact that happens. Okay, why does it happen? Well, obviously, they're modifying reality, right? But are they affecting these patients 20 years ago? Of course not. What are they measuring? They're measuring the data. They're measuring that data of those hospital patients, those hospital stays, is what they're measuring, and they're biasing that data because that data hasn't been brought into this reality yet. Nobody's looked at that data. So that data is still in the future. I mean, the the statistical results of that data are still in the future. Nobody's ever calculated them. And because it's still in the future, it's just probability like everything else that's in the future. It only exists in probability. And like everything that exists in probability, conscious intent can modify the probability. So that's how they do that. Now, let's say that somebody um, takes that data, and before it's given to the rabbis, they do a statistical analysis of what's in both pieces, the, this 500 and that 500, right? They do the statistical analysis, and they know exactly what those average hospital stays are in both groups. They give it to the rabbis to work on, and they worked on it, and they worked on it, and, of course, the rabbis didn't know that this had been done. Guess what? They couldn't do it. They couldn't bias it one bit. And that concludes this show. You have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.